Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. church. Man, what a blessing it is to be here today. I really don't even feel the need to get up after that incredible time of worship. Thank you, Nino, after Chris and Kelsey sharing. Thank you, guys. Man, what a, what a blessing to be here today. Can we just give God some glory and praise for this, uh, for this chance? Man, wow. Yes. And happy Mother's Day. Uh, what a great day to come together and gather in this place. And we do want to celebrate. I, I know, uh, and I want to acknowledge this, this isn't um, always an easy day for everyone in the room, and that's for various reasons. But every one of us have a mother, and we want to give God honor and glory and praise for, for our moms. And for those of you who are mothers, our mothers in the room, we want to say thank you. We love you. We honor you. And what a great day, especially as we gather in this place to talk about this idea of legacy and what it means to, to leave a legacy of faith uh, to celebrate uh, Mother's Day. Man, what an honor. Um, if, you've, if you've missed the past couple of weeks, I want to catch you up real quickly. We're talking about this idea of what does it mean to be a legacy maker? Because here's my theory. The life you live matters. The life you live matters to God. The life you live matters to those around you. And you don't leave a legacy on accident. It doesn't happen, um, you know, without some intention, without some purpose. It's not going to happen if you just drift along and you hope that one day you're remembered or you leave a legacy that really means something. It happens on purpose. That's how we leave a legacy. That's how we leave a legacy of faith. And we believe so deeply that as people of faith, this, this is of huge importance that we want to push pause for a few weeks and talk about this. How do we pass on this faith we've been given, this faith we've received to the next generation, uh, to our children, to our grandchildren. How do we do that? If you missed last week especially, I want to encourage you to go back and watch it online or listen to it, catch the podcast. And I can say that because I didn't preach last week. Uh, I invited my good friend Terry Rush to come speak. And if you missed it, I want to tell you, man, it's one that you want to go back and hear and listen to for yourself. I invited Terry to come. I thought about this weeks and months before this series. You know, I'd love to invite someone to come preach who actually has a legacy of faith. You know, I don't know that I'm there yet. Uh, But Terry, uh, if you don't know, he's been preaching for the Memorial Drive Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, for 40 years. Uh, Not only that, he has three incredible children of faith. I can say that because I know two of the three very, very well. He has incredible grandchildren of faith. I can say that because I was some of them, I was their youth minister for a season. I know him, I know his family. And if you were here last week, you saw not only his heart, Uh, You heard not only his stories of faith, but you also heard his transparency, his love for God. And you can see this man of genuine faith share about having a legacy of faith. How can we all have that kind of legacy? How do we leave that kind of legacy? I want to start this morning with with a quote. I've used this before, but it's so powerful. It's by a man named Mark Batterson, who's a pastor. He's an author. And he once said this. He said these words, I want those who know me best to respect me most. Think about that for a moment. I want those who know me best to respect me most. I can tell you when he wrote those words, he was thinking about his family. Um, When I was growing up in our house, my mom had a room in the house that was 
her craft room. Any of you moms have this room or your moms had this room? You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's the craft room. My mom was, was the kind of lady, still is, that uh, could make a lot of beautiful things. She, she could paint. She could make all sorts of stuff out of all sorts of other stuff. It was really incredible to see what she could do and what she could make. Uh, in that room was her sewing machine, and she had this big board she could lay out. I don't know what you call it. Some of you know what this is called, but it's a big board you lay out. It would kind of unfold and lay out with lines and grids and other stuff on it. And on that, she would take something like this, a, a pattern, and she would uh, pull it out of the package. Some of you have seen this. Some of you haven't. Um, this is a pattern for making some clothes. And if you look at this, the people wearing these are very happy. So I think it's a, it's a good pattern. Um, but you take out this pattern and you would lay it out on this big board. This, isn't, this pattern does not belong to my mom. It belongs to Gwen Smith. She's kind of like our office mom, so it counts. And uh, she let me borrow this. If you look at this, I'm never going to fold this back up the right way. This is kind of like a map in your car. Some of y'all, I don't know what those are. But anyway, um, if you look at this thing, I don't even know how to undo this thing. But you see there's lines. This is huge. There's two of these things. There's lines. There's dashes. There's arrows. There's instructions. There's numbers. I think it goes this way. There's letters. There's all kinds of different things for different sizes and different shapes. To, to, I don't know really how to read this. I'm, I'm guessing you have to have a master's degree, maybe a PhD, to decipher this, to use this, to actually make something. But this is what my mom would do. She would take this out and cut this up and lay it on that big board, take out her material, and then lay it against it and pin it and measure it. And before she ever made a cut... Uh, before she ever put it on the sewing machine, before she loaded up the thread, she would double-check the pattern to see if it matched so she could make whatever it was that she wanted to make. And the beautiful thing about a pattern, you know this, right, is if you use a, a pattern, you can make an exact copy. You can make something beautiful as long as you follow the pattern. And for years, my mom would, would, would make clothes. Thankfully, she doesn't make my clothes anymore. But she would make clothes. Uh, when we had kids, she would, I'm going to lay these over here. She would make uh, clothes for our kids, especially my girls. And they would come to church, and we would go out. And people would see my girls all dressed up. And they would ask me or ask Alicia or ask them, man, that is beautiful. Where, do you, where did you get that? Where did that? What store? Tell me where to go so I can buy that. And we would have to say, you know, oh, you, you can't get that. That's, that's Nana made. Nana, Nana made that. And she was able to make these beautiful clothes because she followed the pattern. She followed the design, and she could copy that and use that to replicate whatever the pattern was for and make something beautiful. And you could go to the store today, and you could go and buy a pattern with some really happy people on it with whatever design or kind of clothes you wanted to make. And if you could figure it out, you could make something beautiful, too, by using the pattern. But you know this, right, that... By using a pattern, this isn't just how we make beautiful things. This is how we shape beautiful lives. In fact, if you think about it, this is probably how you became who you are today. This is what we do. We, we look for people to pattern our lives after. Sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's subconscious, but we look for people and we're like, man, I want to be like that. And what we do, whether we know it or not, is we begin to pattern our lives after the pattern of their lives. And this is really helpful if you choose wisely, right? If you choose the right kind of person to pattern your life after, it can lead you down an incredible road, a beautiful road to give you a beautiful life, to, to, to set you up for the right kind of, of life that you're hoping for and you're praying for and you're desiring. But it can also be destructive if you choose the wrong kind of person 
to pattern your life after. It's all about choosing the right kind of person to pattern your life after. And what's really interesting, and you know this too, is, is we also use these patterns to label people and group people and set people apart and say, oh, they live their life this way, so they're this kind of person, and they live their life this way, so they're, they're this kind of person. And we, we look for those patterns, and we use them as identity markers. And sometimes, sometimes we use those patterns, we use those identity markers to then to make judgments about people, right? And, and sometimes we'll come to church, sometimes we'll come to this church, and we'll spend our, our whole morning talking about this idea. Don't judge people based on those patterns. And maybe we should, maybe we should, and that's for another day. Today, what I want to ask is a different question, and it's this question. What if, what if we were to leverage the patterns of our lives for the next generation? What if we were to leverage the patterns of our lives for the next generation? I think this is, is exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he was writing this letter we call Philippians. If you have your Bible, your Bible app, you can open that up. You can turn that to Philippians chapter 3. Throughout this series, we're just walking through some of the words that, that this man named Paul wrote to this church that he started some years before. He was writing to encourage them. At this moment in time, Paul is sitting in a, in a jail cell. He's sitting in prison, but yet he's writing a letter back to this church that he started years before to say thank you. Thank you for sending encouragement. Thank you for sending support. Thank you for, for caring for me while I'm far away from you. Thank you for all of that. And he's also saying, by the way, I want to remind you that this is how we are supposed to live as we seek to pattern our life after Jesus, as we seek to follow Jesus. And so in Philippians 3, I want to start in verse 17 today. I want you to hear what this man Paul said to his friends, to this church in this Roman colony of Philippi. In verse 17, he says this. Dear brothers and sisters, and this is his word, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Now think about that. Wow. Is that not a big statement? Pattern your life after mine. Paul, Paul knows this church. He knows this people. He, knew, he knows many of them, if not most of them by name. He started this church. He lived with them. He did life with them. Not only did he teach him, not only did he teach these people, but he did life with them for, for a period of time until this church got off the ground, got up and running. They had not only heard him teach, they had seen the way he lived. And now he's saying, everything you saw me do, not just what you heard me say, but everything you saw me do, do that. Pattern your life after mine. There are routines in my life worth imitating. There are rhythms of my life worth you repeating. There are patterns in my life worth you remembering and adopting and taking into your life. And so whatever it was that you saw me do, do that. And if you do, by the way, you will come to know Jesus. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we hit that just a few verses up. Paul says, I count everything else as worthless compared to this one thing, knowing Jesus Christ. So pattern your life after mine. And when you do, this is what will happen for you. You will come to know Jesus too. Why? Because the patterns I've set up in my life, the rhythms of my life, the routines in my life, the things that I do every single day, I do them for a purpose, for a reason. And all of them are for this one thing, to know Jesus. And so I want you to imitate me. I want you to do what I did. What a bold 
statement for Paul to make. Follow me. Pattern your life after mine. And if you do, you're going to get what I get. You're going to get a copy. You're going to see it unfold in your life, too. You're going to come to know Jesus. For several weeks over the last few months, my daughter, Emma, would come up to me. She's our youngest. And after church, Emma, I didn't tell you I was going to tell a story, but I'm going to tell a story anyway. Normally, I get permission. I didn't today, but it's going to be okay. She would come up to me. She's giving me the look. She would come up to me, and she would show me a picture that she drew during my sermon. So I know what she was doing during the sermon. Um, she'd drawn a picture, and I would be like, wow, like that is amazing. Somebody call somebody. I've got a child prodigy on my hands. This picture is beautiful. And she would start smiling like she is right now, not because she was proud, because she knew she had tricked me. If you flip the paper over, you see it was a coloring sheet from class. She just turned it over and used the lighting to like see through and trace the lines and then say, Dad, look what I drew. You didn't draw that. You just copied it, you rascal. Yeah. That's what Paul's saying. Trace the lines. Model your life after mine. See the pattern and copy the pattern. Imitate the rhythms and routines of my life. Do what you saw me doing. And when you do, what you will come to know is what I have come to know through these same patterns. You're going to come to know Jesus. So I have to just pause and ask the question, right? Parents, what would happen if your kids adopted and implemented the patterns of your life into their life? Grandparents, what would happen if your grandkids implemented and adopted the patterns that are in your life? What would they get as a result of copying what they see in you and implementing that in their own life? Paul says, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example In other words, Paul says, follow those who are following me. And it's right here that that Paul makes a turn and makes a shift, and he gives us, doesn't he do this? He gives us a whole new paradigm for church. He gives us a whole new paradigm for discipleship, this, 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 um, this activity of following Jesus in community. He says, not only do I want you to to pattern your life after mine, not only do do I want you to follow me, I want you to follow those who are following me. I want you to imitate those who are imitating me. So so I want this to go down a whole other level. Not only do I want you to to follow me, but I want the people who are following me, I want people to follow them as I'm following Christ. So he's got this two or three levels down of, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I want people around me to be following me as I follow Jesus. Then I want another group of people who are following these people, as these people follow me as I follow Jesus. This is the way it's supposed to work. This is the way discipleship works. This is the way community works. This is the way church works. And when we do this right, when we do this well, what happens is all of us are following Jesus or we're following someone who's following Jesus. This is how we pass down faith. This is the activity. This is the the spiritual discipline of handing off this faith we've received to the next generation. It's saying, here's a pattern in my life that will get you to knowing Jesus. And if you imitate this, if you follow this, you will experience this. That's why at the heart of the mission and vision of this church is this word, invest. Invest. You know, we say it all the time that we want to be a people who, who live different. The way the world lives, it's not working. If you haven't figured that out, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll break the news. It doesn't work. 
We want to live different. We believe the life that Jesus offers works because, by the way, he designed us and he knows there is a way to life. There is a way that leads to life, and Jesus is that way. And so how do we do that? There's really three things we've set up, and you could do more, you could do less, but we've said we want to be a people who invite people to come together. That's different than what the world's doing. They're finding ways to separate. We want to be a people that, that invest in each other. We're not out for ourselves. And we want to be a people that engages in what matters most, not just in what we want in the moment. And at the center of all that is that word, invest. And the way we talk about this is really these two questions. Who are you investing in and who's investing in you? Paul would say it this way. Who are you following and who's following you? Who, who is, whose pattern of life are you implementing and copying and adopting? And who is looking at the pattern of your life and implementing and adopting and copying that? This is Paul's whole idea of how it's supposed to work as we pass on faith and share the faith that we have with each other. It's this idea of investing in each other. And so these are the two questions you have to answer. Who are you following? And you don't get off the hook here. You need to be able to answer this. Who are you following as they follow Christ? Put a name on it. Who is it? Who are you looking at and you're like, it's their patterns, it's their routines, it's what they do, it's how they live, it's how they treat people that I want to imitate because I see them following Jesus and I want to follow them as they follow Christ. But then here's the second question. Who's following you as you follow Christ? Who is it that you've allowed access into you? You can't cap off all the access points. You can't, you can't seal yourself off in a bubble and not allow anyone to pour into you. That, that's not the way you're designed to, to live or work or grow or become who God wants you to be. You need people of faith who are pouring into you. So who is it that you've given permission to invest in your life? Who is it you've let close enough to say, I need I need somebody praying over me. I need somebody pouring into me. I need somebody that has permission to speak life into my life. And if you're a parent in the room, you know this. You need someone. You need parents you can can look up to and say, okay, I know you didn't get it all right, but you got some things right. So tell me, what did you do right? Like we can tell war stories of where we've all gone wrong, and that's good to to share sometimes as well. But tell me, what's, what's one thing you did right with your kids? This is one of the things I've told you before I love to do when I get on a trip with, with, with an older man or older men and we're going to trip somewhere. I'll always just ask that question. Hey, tell me, just tell me one thing you did right. And nine times out of ten, I'm looking for that thing that I can take and copy and put into my own life, into my own family. Because I look up to them, because I know their kids, I know their grandkids, I know that they have found a way to leave a legacy of faith. Not only is it important because of that, but you know this, they're watching us. We've said that already. Our kids are looking at us, and like it or not, we are discipling the next generation. They are copying the patterns that they see in us. They are imitating us in every way. They are valuing what we value. So what does the pattern of our life pass on to those children? This is hugely important. This is what Paul says in the very next breath, verse 18. He said, I've I've told you often before, And I say it again with tears in my eyes that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross. Wow. 
Paul doesn't mince words here. There are many. He's not talking about people who are far from Christ. He's not talking about people who have, who have heard the news of Jesus, the, the gospel, and they have turned away from that and said, it's not for me. He's talking to his friends in the church. And he says, there are some who show up every Sunday. There are many. There's more than one. There's more than two. There are many among you whose conduct, whose behavior, who, it's the way they act, it's the way they react. And it shows, it reveals they are enemies. They are working against the cross, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think right here we've got to push pause again, right? And we've got to ask a personal question. We've got to do some self-evaluation. And this is just between you and God, but I want you to stop and I want you to think about this. What does your conduct say about your allegiance? And I want you to set aside everything that you typically hold on to as an anchor point that you're proud of. Set aside who your parents were. Set aside who your grandparents were. Set aside where you went to school, the degrees you hold. Set aside your perfect church attendance. Set aside the fact that you've been in church every Sunday since the day you were born. Set all that aside. And I don't mean any disrespect. Those are all good things. But set that aside and just ask this question. What is your conduct in the present how you're living today, this week, this past week. What does it reveal? What does it show about where your allegiance lies? This is why we're called to live different. What does your conduct say about your allegiance? We're all following something or someone. The question isn't, if we're following something or someone, the question is just who or what are we following? And this is why this matters so much. This is why this matters most. Because it's who you're spending your time with. It's who's spending time with you. It's who's patterning their life after yours. This is the question that is of paramount importance. Who is it that's looking up to you and following your example? And just to be honest, moms, this is why what you do is so important. You know, sometimes you'll hear somebody say something like, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. There's no such thing. You know that. We know that. Whether you're a mom that stays at home or, or, or you, you work outside the home, all that, it, none of that even really matters. It, what matters is the fact that you are someone's mother, and all of us can testify to the fact that it's our moms, so many of us who poured into us this faith. You are discipling your kids in untold and immeasurable ways. You know, it's, it's you. I mean, it's all of us, but I want to I honor you today in that way and just say, we realize the sacrifices that you've made. I think about my wife and the sacrifice she made for our kids. She was able to stay at home, and I know not everyone's able to do that, but, but she was and I'm so grateful for that. It wasn't easy. It was hard. Some of you are in the middle of that now, and it's not easy. It's, it's hard. It's not easy to be away from adults all day. It's not easy to be surrounded by little babies all day. It's, it's hard work. What our kids don't know yet, and I'm not sure they won't realize for a long time, that it was her decision to do that and to love them and lead them every day in that way that has changed the trajectory of their lives. And if they're half as awesome as I think they are, it's only because... They have a mom who loves them and loves the Lord more than they know. Moms, we get this because we see you. And we see the way you love and the way you lead and the way you 
pour in to our children and show us such a godly example of faith. This matters so much. Do we need to be discipling outside of our families? Absolutely. But don't miss this. Someone once said, and I love this, that the greatest gift you give to the world may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Your greatest contribution to the world may not be anything you do, but it may be someone you raise. And our kids are watching. And if we're not careful, our conduct will betray us because it reveals where our allegiance lies. And that's why Paul says right here that I'm in tears. He says, I'm in tears over the fact that there are some, and this is what he's going after, there are some who the pattern of their life, it doesn't match up to the the faith they profess. They say one thing. They show up and they say all the right things. They show up and they sing the songs. They show up and they check the mark on church attendance. They, They are present. But the pattern of their life doesn't match up with the words they profess. And the result, his words, not mine, they are enemies of the cross. And I don't want to confuse you. Paul is not calling for perfection here. We understand that. In other places, you'll hear Paul talk about, hey, there are temptations, there are struggles. We all have experiences. We all have doubts. We all get that. Paul isn't calling for perfection. What he's calling for is a pattern, a pattern of faith. Who he's weeping for are the pretenders, those who say one thing and live another way. And Paul says in verse 19, they are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think about, they think only about this life here on earth. These are Paul's words, not mine. They're headed for destruction. Why? Is it, is it because God's grace isn't enough? Is it because his love wasn't enough? Is it because the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't enough? No, no. It's because of this. The pattern of their life led them to their own destruction. So Paul says this. He says we're to live different. Verse 20. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. We'll talk about this more next week, but this is what Paul says. The pattern of our lives. It should be our primary identity. This is who we're called to be. As citizens of heaven, we're called to live a different way. You may know this story. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a man by the name of Milton Snavely. Um, he, uh, he grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh, his mother was of the Mennonite faith. His father was a struggling entrepreneur, never really caught a break. He had one sister. She, was, she died of scarlet fever when he was only nine years old. And growing up in this poor, impoverished family, this was sort of the circumstance and surrounding of this, this, this young boy named Milton. His father would, would go off from city to city to city trying to, to, to catch a break, trying to launch a new business, start a new company that would bring, you know, bring some, some income into his family, and it never quite worked out. And it appeared, at least in the early years of Milton's career, that his path would be the same. In fact, for the first 10 years of his career, he had the exact same experience. It was failure after failure. He would go to this city, then that city, then this city, and open up a new company. And every time, every time, it would fail. He would get money from a family member to start something new, and then then that would fail. And it brought shame upon him and upon his family. And so finally, after 10 years of failure, Milton moved back 
to his home state of Pennsylvania. At a young age, his mom had arranged for him to apprentice to a candy maker. And so when he went home all these years later, he thought, okay, I'm going to do this. He had opened up before this, you know, different places, candy shops, every time they had failed. But this time he thought, I'm going to do something a little different. Instead of trying to make all these different kinds of candy, I'm going to make one kind of candy. I'm going to make caramels or caramels. How do you say that? Caramel, caramel? I don't know what that says about you if you say it this way or that way, but I'm going to go with one. I don't know which yet, but one of those. He started making just this one kind of candy, caramel candy. They both sound wrong now. (gasps) And you know what? Because he just made this one thing, it just took off. It wasn't long before he was sending this caramel candy all around the nation, and he he, he had finally made it. He had finally launched a company that worked, and now money was pouring in. he, He was so successful, it got to the point where his competitors came to him and said, hey, we want to buy you out. We want to buy your company. And so get this. This is like in the late 1800s. He sold his caramel company for $1 million. That's a lot of money today. You can imagine how much money that was back then. He sold his company because he thought, I want to try something new. I've got another idea. You know what he wanted to try? Chocolate. By the way, Milton Snavely isn't his full name. That's his first and middle name. His full name is Milton Snavely Hershey. Maybe you've heard of the Hershey chocolate bar. He later, on his own, came up with the idea of the Hershey Kiss. I think they make something like 80 million of those a day now. Up to this point, no one had found a way to really mass-produce chocolate, and he figured it out. And he started this incredible company called Hershey Chocolate that just took off. But here's the part of the story that not everybody knows. Not only did he build his chocolate factory... In his home state of Pennsylvania, he, he created a town called Hershey, and, and he built a town around his chocolate factory where the workers could live. Not only did he make chocolate candy bars, but when World War II broke out, you know what he did? He took his, his chocolate factory and he made nutrition bars for the soldiers. And not only did he keep his factory open when the Great Depression hit, you know what he did? He started new building projects to create more jobs for more people to help them through that difficult time. And here's my favorite part. Milton and his wife, Catherine, were unable to have children. But they decided to leverage their fortune to help the next generation. And so they started something in that town. They started a school for orphans. In 1909, his school opened, and it provided top-notch free education for every child free health care, free resources, free room, free boarding, free. Here's what they said, and I want you to hear this. He said a family's income should not determine a child's outcome. Do you love that? I love that. When he died, he left his entire fortune to that school, some $60 million. Not only that, he made sure that the school would get 30% of the company's earnings. By the way, Hershey's chocolate company is worth in excess of $7 billion. And that school today is still open and still provides free education to children from lower-income families all across the nation. Did you know that? Wow. Here's something else Milton Hershey said. He said, it isn't what you leave your children. 
but how you leave them. I think Milton Hershey knew something about leaving a legacy. One of those kids that graduated in 1992 was a lady by the name of Wendy McClinchy. And I want you to hear what, what she said. She came from a lower-income family and was able to go to Milton Hershey School in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And she said this. She said, Milton Hershey School fundamentally changed the direction of my life. And I can honestly say that it not only changed it, but it probably also saved it. Then hear this. I'm still not sure I feel worthy of Hershey's legacy. But I know that my life has been exceptional because of it. You know what Wendy does today? She works for the UN. She travels the world going from country to country, writing policy to make the lives of the people and the children in those countries better. Wow. How did that happen? Because a man by the name of Milton Hershey, who came up with the idea for mass-producing chocolate candy bars, decided he wanted to have a real legacy. And he decided to leverage every resource he had to leave a pattern of generosity and kindness and compassion that is still making a difference in the world today. Here's what I know. And this is true, by the way, whether you're a believer in Jesus or you're not, whether you believe in what we believe about God or not, this is just true. The pattern of your life shapes the legacy you leave. So what if you leverage the patterns of your life for the next generation? What if you put in your life the kind of patterns you want to pass on to your kids? What's one one of the things that you do that you want your kids to do? You know, when I was a kid, I remember looking and seeing my mom or seeing my dad early in the morning reading their Bible outside on the swing, praying to God. I remember I have these memories, and and, and these are the things that were were just mattered to me, and now I I want our kids to have the same kind of memory. I want them to not just hear the words we say. They don't need another sermon. They don't need a Bible with their name on it. They need moms and dads who are living a pattern of a life of faith that they can see and then one day imitate and put into their own life. They they need parents and grandparents and a church of people who are filled with this one desire, this great ambition to know Jesus and make him known, so much so that that is the impression and that is the fire in their heart as they grow up. Church, how can we leave a legacy of faith? We have to have the patterns in our lives, the rhythms and routines that our kids can see and adopt and imitate that will change the trajectory and course of their lives. Church, if you would, let's, let's stand. It will be really, really mean of me to talk about Hershey's chocolate on Mother's Day and not give our moms some chocolate. So moms, uh, we have these Hershey bars wrapped in a little Mother's Day thing here that Miss Shirley Monroe made to say Happy Mother's Day. And if you're a mom, if you're a grandmother, uh, if you just want to be a mom, um, you can have some chocolate today because we want you to know we love you, we honor you, we care about you, and we think you are awesome. So please make sure you get one of these kids. These are for the moms. Dads, these are for the moms. (laughs) Make sure every mom and everyone who wants to be a mom and every mom-like person in the room gets one of these uh, before we leave. If you flip the page in Philippians, you'll see what Paul says in chapter 4. I'll close with this verse. He said in 4 9, Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then, get this, if you do that, if you put into practice all you heard and you saw in my life, then the God of peace will be with you. You don't really need a master's degree or a PhD to learn how to use this pattern. 
You know what you need to do? You just need to get with someone that knows how to do it. You need to watch. You need to do what they do. And if you do, guess what? You can make something beautiful. And you know what? If we'll gather around us people, children, friends, neighbors, who need to know and experience the love of Jesus, what we'll realize is they don't really need another sermon. They don't really need a Bible with their name on it. They just need someone who will show them a pattern of what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Man, what a legacy. What a legacy. To have the next generation follow the pattern of our lives. Man, may we live into that as we lean into Jesus together. Let's sing.